So I just wanted to shout out Handberry Creative. Um, the shirt that I'm wearing right now, this is a Handberry Creative um, product. It is not business as usual. And so I wanted to shout out this black ass business um, and the fact that it isn't business as usual. This is a Taking Up Space podcast with Stacia and Dre. Coming up. Uh, this is a conversation with Stacia and Andre about colorism um, and how light-skinned people especially can dismantle colorism in the Black community. I don't want people thinking that I, uh, an episode of colorism I'm trying to lighten myself. This nigga. This nigga, this nigga over here in the midst of colorism. <laughs> colorism. Wait, let me just... Let me just smooth these. Uh, child, let me tell you something. No, I can't. We can't. We can't be. We can't be acting like that. Um, for colorism, it's just. It's just the the light. I'm not Oprah. Did you know that Oprah had to light specially for black people in her studio because no one else did it? I'm sure she was on the vanguard of doing that because you know she was like, I run this shit, and we're gonna let the black people look lit the way we should be lit. Absolutely. So I got to figure out what Oprah's lighting text did to like this room. But anyway, thanks everybody for being to the Taking Up Space with Stacia and Dre uh, podcast. Rebranded time and time again. We keep returning to the scene of the crime because we just can't get enough of each other and the great magnet wants us to be together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's essentially it. It's like we've tried to start this podcast up probably uh, three or four times. Um, getting caught up and spun out in life uh, individually and collectively. And then all of a sudden, Stacia said last week, um, let's get on and have a conversation about colorism. And then we rifted out a little bit um, early in an early afternoon, I believe it was early in the week. But then here we are. Um, I think that it's important to anchor this moment by saying um, for our well, I ain't have nobody's kids, but for our legacy, for for my nephews and their children, if you are um, in the archives and their children's children, if you're in the archives um, 30, 40 years from now and you've got your little digital chip to stick in your forehead um, to pull up your family history, because, I mean, think about it. They're going to... Uh, like our children's children's children are going to have, unless we blow this whole fucking thing to smithereens. Yeah, it's, you know, it's about 50-50 chance at this point. I mean, I mean, it, it, it really could go either way. But if they, if they can access this, I want them to know that your grandfather or your adopted grandfather, still leaving room for me not to have anybody's kids in this motherfucker. <laughs> Not gonna do it. Um, so my so my faux grandfather wants you to know that this is a rough, rough time in our history. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to know that your faux great 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 grandfather uh, was stuck in the house for ninety plus days um because of this thing called coronavirus and you've probably seen worse by now little one but um it was the beginning of the shit show for us <laughs> mm -hmm. in 2020 and what it's lifted is um I'm a pivot to Stacia um you, what it's lifted is conversations it's almost like 
coronavirus, Miss Rona, as she's affectionately called, stomped on the ground, and all of the dust went. She said, I'm coming for that ass. And what she did. And one speck of that dust is a conversation about colorism. Just one of the many specks that like flew everywhere and are still airborne in this motherfucker. Um, colorism's one of them. But Stacia, before we even get into colorism, I want to talk about what brings us to taking up space with Stacia and Dre. And also I want to talk about um, the particles of dust that you see circulating right now. Just to anchor this, because we're going to come back time and time again for these conversations. One speck is colorism, but what do you see actually in the air, Stacia J. Turner? Uh, thank you for asking me. Um, and sort of starting off with the importance of why we keep coming back together to have these conversations and um, grounding ourselves in taking up space is that I think we both, a part of the healing journey of our connection has been um, empowering each other, like in empowering each other's voices. And um, I think both of us as leaders and people in leadership roles, we often, um, like people assume that we are confident and that we have the best self-esteem and all these things because we present in a certain way that we intuitively do. And I think we were kindred spirits in you know, feeling that sort of charge, but also sometimes feeling insecure about it. And like, um, always having this like, um, this texture of perfectionism because of being in leadership roles that wasn't tended to by other folks who didn't necessarily get it. Um, and so I think what grew out of, from my perspective, you really shining a light on me and just like filling me up with affirmations and, you know, just like- All gassing deserved. Gassing me up in a way that I truly needed. Um, Cause I could just really be on one talking to you, just us one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. um, and you gave me the space and freedom to do that. And we're like, you should do this more. And um, that, felt really powerful to me and not from an egotistical place but from a self-love place yeah from the best place um for those of you listening on the podcast on the audio version of this um tomorrow um i'm emphatically nodding that stacia has always belonged in these spaces um can you tell me and i'm not trying to interview you because i'll talk a little bit about me too this is just a conversation that we're having but like like we're on the phone but um i'm curious just about what information you were receiving prior to this self-love? Um, I think intuitively, I felt like I need to speak up for people who like ha share my sentiments, but don't feel enough courage to speak. Like I need to be the voice um, for people who have similar perspectives to me through conversations, um, especially with black femmes in particular. Mm -hmm. um, to uplift certain perspectives, uh, but then feeling very insecure, bringing this back around to colorism. Yeah. Um, oftentimes feeling very insecure about my voice because A, I'm continuously doing the work to understand like, how am I using my platform, whatever it may be as a leader, as somebody who's having conversation in public, in general, like, how do I take that, um, that spotlight seriously? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. 
in the context of doing transformative justice. And if I'm not sure about how that I'm doing that, like maybe I shouldn't speak or maybe I shouldn't take up space because of my proximity to whiteness or maybe I shouldn't take up space because I'm gonna be perceived as patronizing because of the way I speak. And when I try to use $5 words or whatever, um, because of the trauma of being graduate educated or whatever. Yep. I think you really the trauma of being graduate. <laughs> Let me tell you something. As someone, as someone who wrote an ex-husband's master's papers consistently for his entire program, uh, nearly um, the yeah, whole you got an honorary master's degree. Then the whole shit <laughs> is traumatic, um, and why people go through it. Um, I understand the thirst for knowledge. I understand lifelong learners. I understand people who genuinely love education. But for the other people who are like me, who I'm a genuine life learner, and I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, a, a constant learner, nothing appeals to me about that torturous project that barely anyone has anything positive to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I thought... I mean, there's all the, I have my own intellectual insecurities. And so I think being in school always gave me a false sense of, I can see now, a very false sense of um, affirming sort of my, um, my intellect or whatever. Um, and I do genuinely love learning and having structured time to learn and to discuss yeah. um, and to have space to make um, sort of, uh, uh what is it um creative writing and works and intellectual writing and works i love having the time and space to do that but what i think i didn't realize at the time is that it comes at a price and those institutions are steeped in a lot of th um, things that are emotionally draining draining for anyone who is really trying to do the critically rigorous work of dismantling like Hot, uh, white supremacy white supremacy patriarchy any kind of hierarchical mm -hmm. structure mm -hmm. um, if you're trying to do the do that work with intellectual rigor like you won't be afforded time because that goes against the grain of sort of how school is corporatized now and yeah. i didn't truly understand that I was caught up in trying to sort of my own intellectual insecurities and thinking that they'd be affirmed by having a master's degree or getting published that I can see through now. Any of, any of these systems of success, um, any of these systems of successful oppression, meaning that these, these things that, that, that the society esteems as when you get that master's degree, when you get to Broadway, somehow your life is going to like unfurl and you will have some greater understanding of this fuckery um <laughs> that is the biggest fucking lie um that i've ever heard and i really um sorry as i like come undone over here i really reject i really reject um people that even in coronavirus and even in this uprising of of the black lives matter movement um people are still kind of perpetuating this hierarchy of belonging, if that makes sense. It's still like, can't wait to get back to Broadway because they still want to put that on a pedestal to esteem to. I'm like, why aren't we, I mean, we can get into it later because we need to talk eventually also either on this episode or another episode about the black imagination. 
mm-hmm. and how Broadway cannot be the pinnacle of black imagination for us because they never saw it for us. And I believe they're going to make room for us incrementally going forward, but they're not going to actually give us full on leadership at the tables. Mm-hmm. Um, so why are we still esteeming these things that, that uh, esteem us not? Absolutely. And in the context of, of colorism, right? Like, Oh, we don't get to colorism. <laughs> you keep well, trying to... No, yeah. no, no. I just thought that I was trying to like direct us, but oh, I a, a like, speaking thought. of which, what is this episode about? Well, I, <laughs> about like institutions of esteem is that yeah. we see in the context of like colorism that mm-hmm. like light skinned folks have get more space to sort of be in institutions of like white supremacy and legitimacy. Um, and so if we are about like black liberation, we also have to s- sort of deconstruct the way we're talking about visibility politics and like wanting to be represented in crumbs in these institutions that are essentially only pulling us in as a token or in some kind of voyeuristic way, I think we need to have more conversations about like, how are we centering ourselves so that we're writing what feels right for us instead of trying to prove that we can sort of like be the best good digestible black, you know? And digestible black. When it's all in proximity to whiteness, you know? Like I can't stand it. I, I when I think about how much, have you ever given thought stations to like, like, how much self-loathing, huh? I'm just kidding. I said, Andre, I've thought about everything. (laughs) When I said to you, Stacia, have you ever thought? I was like, that is the most ridiculous thing to say, but you've already said it, so you got to commit because of course Stacia's thought about this. (laughs) You're a thinker. I'm a thinker. When people are like, you probably didn't think about that, I'm like, no. Try me. <laughs> I, I thought about that. I don't know everything, but I think about a lot uh, that people aren't thinking about. But, so you don't have to think about it, but listeners, think about the fact that I was trying to be like them emphatically for decades of my life. For decades of my life, I hated myself and esteemed, but it, here's the deal. I'm realizing as I grow older, it wasn't about um, being white. It was about the stuff. I wanted the nice things. And I think that it's important to anchor this discussion in our time around the fact that like black people don't wanna be white at all. Um, we just want access to, uh, what do they call it? The um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of white people's happiness. That's what we, that's what we were, that's what we were chasing for all of these decades. Um, but look out world because Stacia, like it, I can see the change in your, in your Shondo. Likewise, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and so, and so it's like, and I can feel it in myself. And so I can just tell that like, the way the ways in which we're showing up feel differently. Um, it feels less obligatory to stand in your black power when you're loving your black ass self. Mm-hmm. You know, it like it like it becomes easier to just jump on 
at 3.15, 3.20, whatever the fuck, in an afternoon on, I think today is Saturday, and just chop it up with your friend and just record it for those who will um, benefit in their souls and in their emotions and in their spirits and then just to have it memorialized for something to look at that's cute 30 years from now when we're giggling on a beach somewhere. Right. And because things feel so much more pleasurable when you feel empowered to do them rather to do them performatively. Right. And yeah. like, I love that you said that like black people don't want to be white. We, we just want access to the things. And I'm so happy that you said that because I think we get so caught up, easily caught up in, um, trying to prove that we are as good as white people to like um, justify our humanity rather than being like, I don't give a shit about your standards of whatever. <laughs> I love how you said it too. I don't give a shit. I don't like, we don't get, like, I don't give a shit about white people's standards. Like, I mean, it's, it's a trauma that I'm having to unlearn that I think most black people and the diaspora are having to learn, you know, to learn, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's important for us to sort of reaffirm that like, we have work to do in our own communities and it's important. And, and also coming back to the, to the topic at hand, like why I felt so called to have a conversation with you about colorism is that while we're talking about Black Lives Matter as a movement and talking about racial justice in America, um, I think it's also important to not just center like blackness as a notion in um, defense against whiteness, because we have our own sort of like family healing, so to speak, that needs to happen. I, um, I, mm -hmm. I think simultaneously and working through our issues with colorism is something that I feel hasn't been talked about by light-skinned people in particular in the same way that we're calling on white people to do their own work to be as upset about like racial justice issues. Mm -hmm. Light-skinned people also need to sort of, I think, be calling out the way colorism functions and the ways in which we're reinforcing it if we're not calling it out and leaning into the vulnerability of talking about ways we reinforce it culturally and and also talking about ways we can deconstruct that and and um disrupt it absolutely absolutely that's the teaser ladies and gentlemen i'm i'm going we're going to get to colorism in one second before we do i want to read this uh quote that came up for me while you were speaking because tamisha binky williams um, one of the board members for love city arts sent this to me this morning and i think it's spot on for what you were saying this is a quote from tony morrison our muse our beloved muse um she, uh, she says the function the very serious function of racism is distraction it keeps you from doing your work it keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being Stacia. Mm -hmm. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Mm-hmm. Ah! Oh my God, that's so beautifully encapsulated sort of like what we are getting into. 
We're getting into Ladies and gentlemen, I want to let you know that Love City Arts has a lot of awesome programming. Stacia's merging her way ever more so into the Love City tribe. Came on as host and artistic collaborator what feels like 20 years ago, even though it wasn't. And now is going to be stepping into some leadership positions, hopefully after some conversations. want to let you know that Won't You Be My Neighbor happens every Thursday. Every Sunday, Caponia happens um, for Black Indigenous people of color. Um, for more information, just visit lovecityarts.org um, and I'm also going to prominently place a link for um, uh, for the Taking Up Space um, podcast so that you can check out Stacia's Medium and all of uh, her Instagrams and .orgs and .com because you know my ass don't ever be trying to promote my shit say it again I said you know my ass will be remembering to promote my own oh book. i'm gonna do it for you because friends don't let friends go ungassed in these streets especially when it's as positive as you are um okay so let's um let's dig into today's conversation um all about colorism um so stacia um explain to me um, when I when I think about colorism, I immediately think about the brown paper bag tests. Mm -hmm. Essentially, this test that white people would use by holding up a paper bag to see whether a brown person was acceptable or not. And if you were darker than a brown paper bag, you were deemed uh, unworthy. Mm -hmm of being in spaces and, and existing in life. And in a lot of ways, society is currently brown paper bag testing us all the time. That's what colorism is, is to me. What is colorism to you? Um, I think colorism is, and that's a great symbol to start with. Um, I think colorism is for me, the way prejudice functions within a cultural ethnic group in regards to um, dark and light, darkness and lightness and skin tone. So um, the ways in which we stigmatize darkness, because it also, it, you know, it extends beyond the black community, like the issue of colorism, because right. white supremacy and colonialism has impacted most peoples, mm -hmm. you know, globally at this point. And so um, I also think it's important to sort of like reflect on the fact that this isn't a um, just a black issue, but what I can speak from is my own black ass experience in the context of colorism. Um, and so, yeah, that's what it means to me is the way that um, prejudice functions within um, a like racial group or like ethnic cultural group um, in the context of complexion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and how that context of complexion literally influences everything everything like literally it's a visual marker that can that can change the sales of magazines um and then that's how we end up <laughs> with white people or light-skinned people on everything because we have this bias against dark skin some someone said a long time ago like the skin is the weapon um, so we, so colorism has been used to weaponize um, our, our bodies. Now this all came to 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 us because you said that light-skinned people 
ain't saying shit about our black ass lives right now. Yo, (laughs) the funny thing too is like, so I don't know, just for whatever reason, like on Thursday or Friday, I was seeing a lot of shit on social about colorism and just like light skinned people taking up space and um, just like issues with colorism. And so I've been for the past month talking about how like, I really need to make time and space to talk about this because light skin hoes are not talking about this. And they really aren't, they really aren't. I haven't seen a lot of, you know, Aisha Curry's and- It's problematic, especially because when, so then I started thinking about like in the Black Lives Matter movement and just like in Black liberation uh, political movements, how often is it that we see the fucking light skin uh activist black activist right as are you talking about sean king i mean that's one example Ah. you know like dark skin femmes who end up being the catalyst for these social movements uh i from my from my perspective um black feminist perspective it's black femme rage that is the seed and the catalyst and the fuel to move black liberation black political social movements and struggles forward and yet so rarely is it that we see brown and dark skinned femmes be upheld in the conversations and i think also more important i don't want to say more importantly but equally as important I think that light-skinned people need to be having conversations, holding ourselves accountable for the ways in which we reinforce problematic um, aspects of colorism in the black in in black communities, and that's relevant to the movement that we're in, because if we're seeing sort of like light-skinned folks representing the conversation about um, black liberation in general that is also couched in white supremacy by not showing the diversity and especially uplifting the people who fueled the movement, which is dark skinned femmes, you know? Like, why, why do you think we, we favor, why do you think we favor light skinned people beyond the obvious? Is, is it, are they more attractive? Are they more appealing? Are they more beautiful? Absolutely like, not. Absolutely not. But it's again, it's the way it's it's the place that we're at in terms of healing the deeply rooted toxin of um white white supremacist mythology right and so if we think about you know in in the tradition of black feminist perspectives um and like patricia hill collins we can look at sort of the structure of who did you just say patricia who Patricia Hill Collins, who wrote Black Feminist Perspectives, which yes. is like a foundational text, but also light skin. Um, I just want to say that because when we talk about sort of like the voices academic, we center academic circles mm-hmm. of Black Feminist Perspectives, we see the sort of um, celebrity academics are light skin Black femmes, you know, like fucking mm-hmm. Bell Hooks, um, Angela Davis. Jesus. You know, we don't see a lot of brown and dark skinned femmes who are really getting upheld as our leaders. And so there's space for all of us, but we all have a responsibility to sort of be uplifting whoever is on the rung below us in um, 
in the power structures, I think, you know? Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Wow, 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 wow. Um, yeah, you, you started saying Angela Davis um, and naming the names, and I, I, I could not bring to mind immediately, quickly enough, a singular dark-skinned black femme, um, Asada Shakur, but I think she was light, too. Right. And I mean, it gets complicated. It's funny because my sister and I were having just like a pre-talk about this before it. And I was like sort of talking about this person that I have a crush on. And I was like, but this light skin nigga and whatever and like blah, blah, blah. But then my sister is like, but like how light skin? And then it's like, you know, it's all proximal. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think thinking about the paper bag test as sort of like, um, a place to start the conversation because it's you know it is definitely a spectrum of like what light skin means and what in our um social imaginary gets uplifted right mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. Um, you know as ideal there's like Halle Berry type you know like light like by ethnically ambiguous um, whatever but then there's also the like high yellow like Beyonce and like Carrie Washington's who also are still less than a, you know, lighter than a Lupita. And it's just like important for us to sort of like, it's, it's messy and it's complicated, but we need to be having conversations about like who is getting centered. Like, yeah, we're, black people are getting crumbs, but even who's getting the crumbs is a conversation that needs to be had, right? Yeah, and, and, and now we want the whole loaf. Mm-hmm. Now we want the whole loaf. Um, okay, so in our notes here, uh, we're talking about today the the colorism that shows up in Black, Indigenous, people of color groups, and the colorism that exists in all of our society. Um, what happens with all Black people, essentially, that are in especially professional spaces or you know, you know, in the arena. Uh, there's not a black person on the sound of my voice who's not been tokenized that who has not been um told in some way like in college it was you're not like the other black people like people were really like you're not like all the other black people and i'm so ashamed that in that time in my life i didn't have the language to go what the fuck are you even talking about like even to this day when I'm talking, when I'll be speaking in Spanish to people, people are like, oh, you're Dominican. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a nigga who can speak a second language. <laughs> Entre la gente, entre la gente, no? Like, they don't, even, they don't even have a fucking clue that we're even capable of this, like, very basic skill that many of them themselves do. Latina, Latino people, Latinx people. The fuck? Like, this is happening to me by brown people. Like, people darker than me are going, Dominicano, see? No, not Dominicano. Blackity in the streets of, of Queens earlier the week. I was walking with a friend to the polls and she heard me scream, Blackity Black! No Dominicano. Blackity Black. Dominicans don't even like us either. Talk about colorism. And don't forget, they're Dominican, not Haitian. See, once again, and that whole rift is anchored in, in, in colorism and the fact that black and dark skin. Like, y'all literally on the same landform. Y'all shit's the same. But one's talking black liberation and one ain't. Let's get it. Like, 
I don't. I will never understand how people could be on the same motherfucking piece of land and think that they're different. This is the problem with the society we're living in. Um, and not to take away from, I'm not doing a all lives matter. You'll never hear that from me. And I'm not doing a kumbaya. Like I don't see color situation, but we could drop down for a second into our um, inner guidance. We understand that we are all connected in this interdependent web of love and uh, responsibility unto each other, regardless of your skin color. And the fact that you niggas are hell bent on being on the same piece of land or on the same planet and not recognize that what you do affects me and what I do affects you is the biggest pile of bullshit ever. We shouldn't even be talking about colorism because you niggas should understand that like a human heart on the inside looks the same. When you perform autopsies on black people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, that may not be the way the statistics work, but hundreds of thousands of people die every day and their autopsies done when you pull out these people's organs for analysis you recognize empirically that they are the same organs and the same organized like like black people don't have a special like mechanism in them like a special organ that prevents them from feeling pain we we are fundamentally the same um and then you put on this 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 cloak of colorism and I'm having a hard time, Stacia, in life generally because this is the stupidest shit ever. Mm-hmm. And that stupid is, a, is, I'm not supposed to be using that language anymore because it's an ableist kind of a language, but um, I, I can't say dumb either. Um, I, uh, it makes no fucking sense. It makes no fucking sense. It makes no fucking common sense that literally we have all of this science that supports the dismantling of these systems of oppression and we hold on to this arbitrary, not arbitrary, that's not the word I'm looking for, we we hold on to this value system anchored in skin color and pretend like it's normal. Like, it's not. Right, right. And it's also absurd to me um the way absurd absurd in like black communities because at least among my family and i think most black families experience this in in the american context because genetically we're so mixed up and so many of our ancestors were raped uh we have a spectrum of shades within our families like within our family context from me all the way to my dad's dad, who is... For the, for the folks who are listening who don't know. <laughs> Albino-ass white. <laughs> black, to, um, you know, to somebody that is like charcoal dark, uh, like my grandfather, my dad's father. Um, and so if we have those people who are effectively a part of us, you know, who are lit the most, the closest in shared genes to us that represent like we literally can be any shade um, of the rainbow in terms of complexion, why we hold on to a little crumb of exceptionalism or feeling like we're special because of one slightly closer inkling uh, 
uh, one inch closer to whiteness is like very problematic and also shows that we're not leaning into our empathy about who we are. Mm -hmm. And what I come back to again, over and over again, when I'm getting a little inflated head about my sense of leadership or whatever, the leadership roles that I have or a platform that I have, I think about my grandma who is probably the person who I am the most intimately connected to. She nurtured me and raised me my whole life and pretty much all the people in my family. And she's a dark skinned femme who birthed our family right who sustained us who everybody allowed us everybody in there to move from a circumstance of living in alabama to being a middle-class black family like she did that with her labor you know with a sixth grade education like she did that and so it's a responsibility in my empathy and connection to her to never forget that she is a part of me and what that means is that every time i'm in proximity to another black femme, I have an obligation to uplifting and empowering her. I, I can never lose sight of that. You know, like that's something that I reinforce to myself over and over again to make sure that I stay on mission with how I'm using my pr proximity to whiteness and or access to resources or whatever to sort of recycle that energy resource affirmation black and in, back into black femmes who are the ones who sort of like blast love and nurturing into me and always have. i mean well they are i mean i love every time oh, what's the white lady doctor um uh that does the blue eye brown eye oh yeah uh, what is it jane whomever jane elliott yeah dr jane elliott um no i forgot the oh, fuck what about Dr. Jane Elliott was I about to say? Oh, when she talks about that the first, the first, the first woman that birthed us all out of the primordial ooze um, and through evolutional consciousness um, and science um, was a black woman. Mm -hmm. Like the first woman was a black woman, sub-Saharan sub, sub Africa. Mm -hmm. is where the first woman came and then as people apparently moved further away from the equator they became lighter and lighter and lighter um and that's how we get all of these different shades as like an adaptogen or as an adaptable quality of the human body and then you know here we are right and so you know the reason why i keep that um sort of vision of my grandma and my responsibility to sort of like honoring and uplifting black femmes is that um, I, it's important for me to stay in, to stay in that empathy and not get caught up in my own identity insecurities. Because honestly, I think that's one of the main things I wanted to call out about like dragging light skin folks is that I think the reason why more light-skinned people are not talking about issues of colorism is because a lot of light-skinned people have real identity issues. Like Can we talk about it? Because I, I nev I've never, I've been, I've been a dark nigga. My, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been, I mean, I'm like mid-tone. Um, people clearly think I'm Dominican. Um, so like, you know, 
like or or when I was at the Cracker Barrel that time in Tennessee, and I was like, could you send the errant man to the table and tell him to bring some cornbread? <laughs> you do look mad, Middle Eastern. I can see it with your you- far ass. <laughs> Mr. Aladdin Sad. So listen, like, um, what what is the identity? What is the, what? I'm dark, so I don't know what you see and what you feel and what you witness. So I'm only gonna take a little bite-sized moment to talk about this because a part of the issue that I'm gonna get to about light skin identity problems is that because a lot of light-skinned folks haven't done their own like work to work through their identity issues, mm-hmm. what ends up happening is that when we're having conversations within the Black community about colorism, about the oppression of brown and dark-skinned folks, light-skinned people want to pi- like pipe up. And, you know, because it's like sort of this insecure reaction to trying to have solidarity and to trying to reaffirm blackness and to be like yeah me too and it's like no bitch like (laughs) like and i've had to call myself out on that for example do you you feel like biracial people fall into the same category or are adjacent to that absolutely they're the worst ones because i mean it makes sense right when you have a literal Mm -hmm. like black and white parent trying to grapple with and you know i also think it's important for us to i used to be so militant about like blackness and what how people need to self-identify but as I've gotten deeper into understanding race as a construction and how people conflate cultural and ethnic identity with racial racial identity which is really just a social construction whereas like ethnic and cultural identity is what happens over time as people sort of make their own rituals you know bond in a certain way um, but like, I think everyone should have their own self-determination when it comes to like how they racially identify, um, and honoring the idea that race is a construction. And so I think that every person needs to define for themselves, black person needs to define for themselves what feels the most empowering in terms of how they see themselves. And I think a lot of light skinned folks, because there is you know, the tragic mulatto trope of not feeling um, like you belong in white spaces, but also not feeling like you belong in black spaces. Mm -hmm. Like that's a whole thing that we can talk about that we're not going to give too much energy here. Mm -hmm. But I think just as an example of what I feel like as a light skinned person who has worked through those issues myself, is that like, until you see yourself fully, and feel firm in that, there's gonna be this reactionary way that you both and co-sign certain things about blackness, but then tokenize yourself among among whiteness. Do you think they're doing it with full knowledge that they're doing it? Or do you think they're no. doing it because, you, no? No, I don't think a lot of light-skinned people are even necessarily aware that they're doing it. I think it's wow. just like, it's a reaction to having an internal identity crisis. And I know because I experienced it myself, like coming from growing up in a white con- a predominantly white context of Arizona, mm-hmm. raised by dark-skinned black femmes, mm-hmm. um, and then having albinism and being alternative, so liking like quote unquote white shit, um, 
it, I had to do a lot of this identity work very early on that I think a lot of light-skinned folks are not necessarily pushed to do. Yeah. And so because I can, you know, my dad is multiracial and my mom is black. They're both black, but like my dad's mom is um, half Choctaw and then her mom was biracial. So I have, you know, my curl pattern is pretty loose. I have yeah. albinism. Then I know 4C. What'd you say? That ain't no 4C. Yeah, it's absolutely not 4C, right? Like I can wash and go. Um, and so- <laughs> sisters, I, sisters all over the earth just met this. Roll their eyes, like my sister. No, and I'm gonna get to that. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I had to work through a lot of these identity issues about like, so what does blackness mean for me, right? Like if I'm too white for black people and too, black for white people unless I'm performing like what does that mean and what I came to understand for myself is that like I have to know that whoever I am is what I am and like I culturally identify as black because I was raised in a black community I have black cultural context we watch black tv shows I listen to black music yes I like Wait, I have a question for you that may be intrusive um not well not to you i mean but i just i don't know the community um do you think that there's albino people out there living as white uh yeah i mean in a certain in a certain sense i definitely moved in spaces where i passed without like trying to articulate my blackness like a part of the reason why Wait, but, i mean you're but like like your features are like i see a black woman's face yeah have you seen those the instagram pictures of me though when my hair was real long and i used to straighten it i'm gonna go look now go on keep uh, talking <laughs> like, i think that there's definitely like a thing that i'll see which i think this is better than trying to go the other way but i've noticed a lot of um black people with albinism doing a thing where they will like darken their hair and eyebrows to just appear more like a, just a very light-skinned black person rather than a person with albinism, which mm -hmm. is like fine however you feel like comfortable. Um, but I'm sure that there's people who pass, like I definitely lived parts of my early life, like in, depending on the, the space I was in, like not articulating my blackness and having straight long hair. So like, unless I said it, people not knowing that I was black. Wow. Wow. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. And I'll, I'll go even one further to say that like, it was kind of a, with the personal being political um, in the black feminist tradition, mm -hmm. I made a very intentional choice to cut off all my hair um, and to stop straightening it because I firstly was using in a lot of ways, I was using my hair as this kind of like um, affirmation of, I don't know what, but because you know, my hair, it can grow very long and it's thick. Um, it was, and I don't like feel any kind of shame about doing that because as a person with albinism, like I have my own like self-worth issues that I have to work through. But in terms of like blackness and colorism, I realized that for me personally in my politics, it was problematic for me to be capitalizing on these certain things that um, are closer in proximity to whiteness. Yeah, this is very white lady. The ice cream cone just took me over the top too. <laughs> right. 
right. Like the ice cream, the ice cream layout. For people listening, this is the most Caucasian photo of Stacia I've ever. This could be in Wyoming. Yeah, right. And like, you know, I definitely can do the thing where, and if you look, if you go even deeper in the timeline, when I had straightened, and that picture, my hair is not even straightened, but when I had straightened long hair and I would sort of like have this very like Barbie aesthetic, like I could, uh-huh. I, I, I could, you know, present in that way and I could capitalize on. Oh my, pres- I've never gone this deep in your Instagram because like, I have access to you every day, so I never have a reason to like like yeah, move this far deep. down. But like, this, what in the caucasity? Right, and so you know, it's it's been a political no shade. A pol- no, I'm like fully transparent, and that's kind of the work that I feel like light skinned people need to do. Is like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Right, exactly. So I I could present that way. Like I could present that way, and I'll also give myself the room and freedom to say like. I could decide to fucking straighten my hair tomorrow if I wanted to do that. And that would be my own black ass business if I decided to do that. So I don't come for, I think it's important to both and say, I don't come for people who decide to not have natural hair, regardless of like what complexion you are or come for you wearing a weave or whatever. Everyone has to do their own work. But what I want to pattern through my own transformation is that Given the fact that I can easily present as white if I do certain work to my appearance, um, I felt it as a political obligation to me and also affirming like what is the most natural to myself to not straighten my hair, to not present in a particularly like high femme way, Mm -hmm. to not, uh, you know, to just be more authentically me rather than performative in proximity to like straight whiteness. Um, And that's a way for me Mm -hmm. to sort of also dismantle colorism because Mm -hmm. like I can present in like, even in professional settings, this is another example. I can present in a certain way, you know, I can perform to whiteness in a particular way. It's part mm-hmm. of the reason in full disclosure, I probably have positions of leadership and power. Um, but the way that I try to um, deconstruct that yeah. is by leaning more into less code switching and more authentic presence mm-hmm. and not being afraid that like, well, if I actually remind them that I'm black, they're gonna snatch this shit. Because it's like, that's my obligation. They need to understand that blackness is more than just like you trying to vilify someone who has 4C curls and dark skin. Like Mm -hmm. we're the same culturally in a certain respect. And I'm gonna keep reminding you that by being my black ass self rather than performing to a whiteness that I can perform to. Right. But, but then but then I'm doing double work. I think about this all the time. I, I recently worked for a global um, engineering consulting firm. And while working there, it became very clear to me that like my job was my actual like role and function in my job was a job. And then my secondary job that was almost more exhausting than the actual fucking work was performing for white people um and it all it, it was that the like i i am a uh, wonderful worker i work well within teams i accomplish goals i can i can meet K- kpis all of that stuff 
I, my problem is not with the work that I do and the work that I offer and what I bring to the work that I do. It is dealing with the annoying ass white people who require a certain element of performance in their presence, period. Someone recently said that black... That, um, someone recently said, um, and I'll, I'll have to find the clip uh, to share on the social, but someone recently said that to white people, we're only good for two things, entertaining them or fucking them. And it really, really struck as true because... Not the fucking part with my with my former colleagues, although I got stories that I will not tell on this open mic. Um, but with the performance element, that is a situation that black people are required to mm-hmm. and asked to be. We can say not even literally sexed, but like being sexualized. Sexed. Yeah, You're like your presence in the space is sexualized. It's a it's a really really weird fucked up thing. Um, that the mainstream has asked us to do. What I love about these conversations and what I love about where we are, um, what we are emerging into is a space where I am not here to fuck you or entertain you. (laughs) I'm here to just live my beautiful black ass life without encumbrance, Mm -hmm. period, poo. And I'm not going to ask it anymore. I'm going to demand it. Real talk. And I love to see that black boy joy. I truly... Because there's nothing wrong with me. Like, there there was never anything... There's nothing wrong with any of us. There are circumstances that compound upon our lives that make us act out, uh, you know, uh, re uh, reenact the violence that white people inflicted upon us. We're all, we, all we're doing is reenacting a little bit of a play of what you did to us. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Ain't nothing happening around here right now like what happened for 400 years that y'all had us in chattel slavery. So you're going to be all right. Get an inhaler, take a, take a puff of whatever you need to take a puff of, um, get you some hippie letters or whatever you need. Calm your white ass down with the excuses and the drama because ain't nobody, we're in harsh times, but it ain't ch- chattel slavery. So for me to ask you to just leave me the fuck alone. Let me live. Ain't nothing, because guess what? I don't got a whip like your granddaddy did. I don't got a whip like your great-great-great-granddaddy did. I'm just asking you to leave me the fuck alone and let me be liberated inside. Um, I want to pivot really quick, only for a moment, into this conversation of of, of black liberation. Um, Where is the common ground? Skipping forward in our notes. where, Where is the common ground of of where light-skinned people and dark-skinned people actually unify in the fact that we're, we're not going to... What I love is the solidarity that I feel with you, Station, that, like, we're not going to shuck and jive in any spaces anymore. Like, we run this organization. Station and I are leaders in Love City Arts and in this community. So whatever we say we want to fucking do in this community goes. And if people... I don't care if you're fucking pink and green. If you don't like the love we're serving here... Then do what Nina Simone said. Get up and go. We've had people get up and literally go in the last couple of weeks. All love. Um, but then what we're finding since we're constructing our own spaces and deconstructing the spaces that we're in, um, you know, these slave ships called corporations that black people have been living in or these slave ships called nonprofits that we are currently working in, as we begin to take the chains off from under and come up and start slashing some pirates. 
Where do we meet in the middle? Like where, where uh, not the middle. I don't even want to say middle. Where is the solidarity to be found for light-skinned and dark-skinned people is the question. Um, so one thing I want to start with, and I've been trying to reinforce this notion um, in a lot of the spaces I've been talking in right now about liberatory politics is that, um, and I take this from sort of like Adrienne Marie Brown, also light-skinned, but other people. Uh, All these light-skinned people, god damn. Um, biracial I, yeah biracial um i think that like we the place for liberation first of all is like there's not a template and people are afraid of getting away from the idea of a rigid framework of like how we get free because it feels scarier to have to do the continuous work that i believe needs to be done which is that liberation and justice have to be continuously negotiated and it's a fractal system it starts with our closest connections and relationships and continuously negotiating the power dynamics and being self-reflective about when we are have the leg up and when we don't could you could you could you pause here for a second like you know what you're about to say mm -hmm. okay good 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 i want to make sure that you don't lose it because i hate coming back from a pause and then you don't remember we got to talk about this constant flow of relationship that you, you can't just set it and forget it. You just made an awesome point that I can't let go by um, today. It is that relationships of all types and modalities are constant motherfucking work in a fractal system. And so what Seisha is saying is that it begins here with her and I, but then we have to constantly upkeep and maintain that in proximity to the communities we're in. And then we have to maintain those relationships too. And then the bigger ones, it, it, this is a, it's not going, you can't just be like, oh, Stacia's cool and walk away. Like we have to actually work at this. Go, okay, continue your thought. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love that you, you paused for that. Um... Thank you for that. Um, but so what I was getting at is that I think that we have to start negotiating in our in our interpersonal relationships first and then fractaling out into the community. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of sort of thinking about how we're addressing colorism in our own relationships and a perfect example. I'll give two quick examples because I hate when people just talk in the abstract. I'm very pragmatic yes. um, without talking in a narrative way about examples. So my sister and I, and I, I asked before this conversation, um, my sister, if she had any tidbits that she thought would be good for me to talk about with you. Yes. Um, and my sister is, is, you know, brown skin. And I like, she is my heart, <laughs> my mm -hmm. full ass heart. And because her generation is becoming more empowered and articulating for themselves, she's uh, 18. Um, sort of their identities and the challenges that they have and being more vulner vulnerable and talking about them. She has really opened my eyes personally to the ways in which I was almost having this like color blindness in the context of colorism from my own perspective. Um, and so we can talk about hair as a really perfect example of that. I think it's a really good one. So like I said, um, I have, you know, you can see my 
my texture and for those listening, um, you know, I have maybe like 3B, 3C at most curl texture. Um, and we have different fathers and my dad's multiracial. And so like, you know, I have a loose curl pattern. Um, and I had my own struggles with like having to find products that worked for me or whatever. My sister has um, a father that is black and her texture is like 4C. And so when she went to, started the process of the natural hair journey, I initially started to try to bond with her uh, like through solidarity about the struggles of going through the natural hair process and journey, right? Um, and in a certain sense, we did have solidarity because we had to deal with my mom's respectability politics and fighting for my sister's autonomy to even have natural hair, which I also experienced. So we had solidarity in that, but my sister dragged me as she should have and was like, bitch, we don't, like, we don't have the same hair issues, right? Right, right. We, like, let's be clear here that we don't have the same hair issues. And at first I felt a little offended and I was just like, but we, like, I have, like, my hair gets frizzy and I had to like call myself out and be like, no, like, this isn't a space like, while it's okay for me to sort of acknowledge in myself my own issues with my hair texture and the natural hair struggle, I have to acknowledge, if I want to be about liberation, that, like, I just have it easier in the context of, like, managing my hair in a way that's acceptable to society because of my texture being closer to, like, whiteness than my sister does, and it's taking away from me nurturing her, listening to her, doing service to dismantling colorism to erase her experience by acting as if our experiences are the same. It doesn't lessen my blackness for mm -hmm. me to admit that like she, the way that her hair presents and having to manage it in a natural hair context is more of a challenge than it is for me. And she also was like, I'm really frustrated that you have to dig so deep to find resources for, and she's like, it's getting better, but you have to dig for resources for like 4C and Courser, like, um, you know, YouTube videos and like hair care products and people just like talking about care and maintenance. And you see so many biracial, you know, like biracial hoes talking about like the things that work for them and what they do without acknowledging that there's differences and that like the natural hair community is dominated by something that's still closer in proximity to whiteness than like, you know, uh, something that's coarser. And the African continent has all sorts of like complexions and textures. So we can't just say closer to blackness, right? Because that's a construction. Well, you said in the notes here, um, black people are not a monolith. Yeah. You know, the, this... the same. and it's okay to like identify that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. Um, I, I, I see a space where black people will actually stop doing crab and barrel um, mm -hmm. mentality and actually do what Asada said. I, I don't think that there's, I mean, I, I've been listening to a, um, uh, James, uh, James Baldwin speeches and lectures. And I just, I fall more and more in love with him, um, every day. Um, it's like my boyfriend, James, um, he's very, um, near and dear to me and we're getting closer. Um, we've been courting me and James Baldwin, 
um, during all of this. And I just, I think a lot about how black people have fallen into being destructive in each other's lives for no other reason than because that's what we were given. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I imagine speaking to the black imagination, which we are always here for, I imagine a world where, a world where we are just kind of sitting at the table. We're at the cookout together. And when someone steps out of line or if someone does something that doesn't serve the community, we openly rebuke, call back in, and keep moving, marching on till victory is won. My point was James Baldwin and Asada Shakur and our ancestral um, line, they gave us all of the footnotes and the blueprint of how to do this. Asada told us... um, uh, it is our duty. Oh, my brain is just. It is our duty to win. My brain is not working right now. Usually it does. The Asada chant is. Uh, oh man, it usually comes right off of my tongue. Don't it be like that? <laughs> it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love one another and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love one another and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. I've been saying the second part of it so so many times over the last few weeks and and omitting the first part. I forgot what the whole fucking thing was. Um, Because the loving and supporting part Mm -hmm. is what I really want us to get in this thing more than anything that if you are black and then if you are brown and if you are living this collective oppressed experience then you are not my enemy we need to unite for the empowerment and liberation and uplifting of black people with the understanding that when black people are liberated then everyone else will be liberated too one thousand percent one thousand percent and i i just really want to reinforce to other light-skinned people that like acknowledging that like colorism is real and that the closer in proximity to whiteness you are affords you certain privileges does not revoke your black card. It doesn't make you less black to acknowledge that that is reality. Mm -hmm, And like mm -hmm. the more you have your own identity issues about your blackness, the more you're gonna try to tokenize yourself. (laughs) That's what happens. That's what happens. Who's moving that chair upstairs? You know, of course, now everybody wants to rearrange all the furniture. (laughs) I I love it. Okay, so the question that we're going to leave everybody with today is a very important one. Um, It is, how do we build black liberation with centering autonomy in thought, feeling, and self-determination amidst also building solidarity? Essentially... Um, to dispel this for people who aren't as brainy as Stacia, or to distill this in a way that I, what, I'm, what I think I'm reading um, from the brain, Stacia J. Turner, ladies and gentlemen, um, is, yeah, how do, we, how do we build black liberation with centering? Like, no matter what your color, no matter where you land in the color of your skin in black liberation, 
how do we continue to build solidarity for the purposes of black liberation in that, right? Right. And maybe said an easier way is like, how do we acknowledge our own struggles with self-worth, mm -hmm. marginalization, right? Mm -hmm. How do we both and but like work on those things, but also work to lift other people who have less privilege than even we have up. Um, I think we can really get caught up in an oppression Olympics. Um, and just to loop back around to the like tragic mulatto trope, mm. like I think that it is valid for light-skinned people to have conversations about that identity crisis situation. I think it would be healing if more light-skinned people talked about it, how they're working through it or whatever, but it's not the time or space to talk about that when we're talking about colorism, how it functions, and how darker-skinned people are oppressed by the mythology of white supremacy. Like, that's not the time and space to do that. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. the time and space to do that. And so, like, there's enough room for all of us to collectively talk through our marginalities and our issues and challenges with it. But we all got to collectively do our due diligence, I think, to make sure that we're not living in a scarcity mindset of like, if I don't talk about all of the ways that I'm oppressed, then nobody's gonna know. It's like, honey, you can't, there, we have the whole interwebs to talk about whatever shits you wanna talk about. But like, if you're talking about like uh, liberation and like you're really about that life, you always need to also lean into the vulnerability of talking about where are you situated? What is your context? Come on. Very important. <laughs> Very important. Very important. Thank you, Stacia J. Turner. Another fabulous episode of... <laughs> what episode are we... What show is this? This is... Uh, I started smoking halfway through this episode, and so now I don't even know where I am. Oh, you, you needed to couch this and really doing some black shit. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> I said you had to couch this conversation and doing some bigotry. I literally was like, oh man, we're we're really going deep with this colorism. Let me take a puff. And now I don't even realize that we're doing the Taking Up Space podcast with Stacia and Dre. See you all very, very soon. Thank you for that. This was lovely. Thanks for watching.